Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Anthony M. Stefano, and he published in May 25th, 2021, a book who, that I've read in its entirety. The title of the book is The Deadly Dawn, Vito Genovese, Mafia Boss. And right now on Amazon, it has 93 five-star reviews, and there is an audio book as well, so you can listen to that. The hardcover will be coming out in 2022, I think in May but you can get a soft cover as well from Amazon. Uh, Mr. DeStefano has written many books. He's been a reporter for the past, past 20 years for Newsday in New York City, and he specializes in criminal justice and legal affairs. Uh, he has appeared on biography channel programs as an expert on organized crime and also speaks at academic conferences about crime and human trafficking. As a member of the staff of Newsday, Mr. DeStefano was on a team of reporters who won the Pulitzer Prize for Spot News in 1992 for the newspaper's coverage of the Union Square subway crash. And he's written many, many books about the mob and the mafia. The first one goes back to 20, 2007. The title is The War on Human Trafficking, U.S. Policy Assessed. And then in 28, 2008, King of the Godfathers, Joseph Messino and the Fall of the Bonanno Crime Family. He's also written Vinnie Gorgeous, Ugly Rise, The Ugly Rise and Fall of a New York Mobster. 2013, Gangland New York, The Places and Faces of Mob History, 2015, Mob Killer, The Bloody Rampage of Charles Carniglia, Mafia Hitman, 2017. Also in 2017, a book I'd like to read is The Big Heist, The Real Story of the LaFonsa Heist, The Mafia and Murder. And then a book that kind of ties into this subject matter, Top Hoodlum, Frank Costello, Prime Minister of the Mafia, 2018, and then Gotti's Boys, The Mafia Crew That Killed for John Gotti. So many mafia-themed uh, books, but again, we're going to talk about this one. The title is, again, The Deadly Dawn, Vito Genovese, Mafia Boss by Anthony M. DiStefano. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Well, thank you very much for having me. Awesome. Well, for people, you have a long background. You're in New York City. Can you kind of talk about your career and your book writing and then what led you to write this book, The Deadly Dawn? Well, um, the arc of this career, uh, I started out... Uh, uh, I was working as a reporter for a small news service in New York, Fairchild News Service, which is um, uh, part of uh, uh, Fairchild Publications. I happened to be going to night law school, and I needed a job, and I got that job. And um, it was, you know, it wasn't that interesting a job, but at one point, uh, since we were affiliated with Women's Wear Daily uh, for all newspapers. Uh, one of the editors there said, listen, let's let's do a series of stories about the mafia on 7th Avenue in the clothing industry, the fashion industry. Well, the three of us looked at each other and we said, well, gosh, we don't know anything about it. And uh, I said, you know, they're interested, so let's give it a shot. And, uh, you know, what do you do? I mean, it was sort of the blind leading the blind. Uh, where do you start? Back then it was, uh, this is in 1977. We, um, you went to the basics, you know, you went to the reader's guide of periodical literature, right? Those old green volumes in the library. You went to the old library files. And then you started to have to do the gumshoe work. You started talking to investigators because New York City at that point had gone through some interesting mafia prosecutions in the fashion industry. Uh, with the mafia. And uh, we uh, had that to work with. So we we 
plumbed that area, got a lot of history. Uh, we did stuff in LA, we did stuff uh, you know, Pennsylvania, and mostly New York. You know, you go through these old newspaper. This was the day when you, you got, this is well before computerization. You go through the, the papers, the actual hard copies of the papers uh, in, in big volumes that were the preserved, and you read them and, and you make them were Xerox copies, large photostats. And, you know, we really had to do the work manually. We had to go to court. You had to pull records. You had to go out and talk to people. There wasn't a lot of database stuff. There was none available at this point in time. This is in the late 70s. And we got together a series of stories that ran for two weeks. And it set the whole town a buzz. New York was a buzz. Uh, because, you know, it went after an industry that was pretty, you know, pretty big at the time and filled a lot of interesting characters, you know, Calvin Klein, uh, uh, you know, Bill Bless, you know, very big fashion houses. Not that any of them were involved, but it was a big deal in New York. And the New York Post wrote us up. And uh, it was at that point you say, geez, you know, we, I guess we did a good job. And now your life is never really going to be the same as a reporter because you, you know, you cracked this big nut, the mafia on 7th Avenue. So from that, you know, uh, we all, there were three of us, we went our separate ways. I went to the Wall Street Journal after that and did some work. Uh, again, I thought I was never going to write about the mafia again. But it turns out within the first few months, we were writing about the um, uh, you know, presidential, vice presidential candidate Geraldine Ferraro and her family's uh, questionable interests, at least her husband's questionable interests in the real estate business, which happened to be in Little Italy in New York, where a lot of the mob characters, you know, have places of business, live. So I'm going back to these old places I have written about, the old addresses, and that created a furor. Uh, not in a good way for me, because... Um, uh, you know, everybody was upset that we were taking a shot at Geraldine Ferraro. They were accusing me of anti-Italian bias, and uh, you know, it was just laughable. But uh, uh, you know, the stories were solid. It's just that um, you know, people didn't like going after uh, you know the first vice presidential candidate who was a woman. But in any case, uh, I stayed with the mob from that time on. I left the journal to go to Newsday at about. 86, early 86. And that was right after Paul Castellano was assassinated. So the mafia, again, is the big story in New York, because as you recall, from December 2015, through Gotti's ascension, and through a few years after that, you know, the mob was a big story, and Gotti made it a big story. So again, the mafia stayed with me as a that's kind of subject matter. It was almost like a default subject to write about. I did other things for the paper, you know, legal affairs, uh, criminal trials, but the mafia was the, the big story. We did a big story about the commission trial of 1986. And of course, uh, you know, again, I said, well, I'm not gonna be writing about this much longer. You know, it's there's kind of things to write about. Well, I was wrong because uh, I, I started covering Brooklyn Federal Court for the paper. And that was when I covered the trial of Joe Messino, 
the Bonanno crime boss. And it was that trial that actually got me into this whole book mode because I walked into the, the courtroom and I wasn't really interested. The Bonanno crime family wasn't a very interesting family for me. I, uh, I more of a Gambino crime family guy. Uh, so I went in. As soon as I walked into the courtroom, I knew there was going to be something different about this case. Why? Because Joe Messino's lawyer, who I knew, David Breitbart, uh, saw me come in, looked at Joe, nodded to Joe, said something to him. And Joe looked at me, looked at his wife, and he nodded at his wife. And I didn't know what that meant, but it wasn't bad because later the wife, you know, came came up to me and was was friendly and we you know had a very guarded conversation and i gradually built a rapport and it was through that rapport that uh, uh that i got an interview with her which was at that time was like big big story you know the mafia don's wife doesn't usually talk but she wanted to talk about her husband and about how her brother had betrayed him and how her husband was a great guy and i got a great story out of it and I covered the trial. Cena was convicted. And it was then that uh, Gary Goldstein was the editor at uh, Kensington. And I contacted me and said, hey, will you think about doing a book about the Messino case? And I thought about it for a couple of seconds. And I said, yeah, it's a good idea. And I, you know, I had the entree to the family, his Messino's family. They were cooperative to an extent. You know, they didn't give me everything. And I knew the trial. And I knew a lot of the background and I knew how to the connections to the FBI agents who were involved. So I wrote the book. Um, uh, the Last Godfather was called. It's now also in paperback as the King of the Godfathers. And that got me going. That got me going into the book mode. And from there, you know, we did the the, the book about Charlie Carniglia, the killer in the, the Gambino crime family. As you mentioned, I did Vinnie Gorgeous, who was a Bonanno crime family captain who Messino betrayed. That's a twist. Uh, between Messino betrayed him and got Bassiano in trouble. And then I, you know, I went, I, I did a book that was close to my heart because I always wanted to do it, Gangland New York, about the faces and places of the mob history. And I, I say it's a favorite because. As I walk around Little Italy, Chinatown, other places in mob history, you, know, you realize that these places may disappear at some point. And a lot of people, a lot of the young people especially, don't know what these locations were all about. They didn't know about the gangs of New York at the Five Points. You know, Scorsese's movie was set in an area very close to where I work. And, um, uh, you know, there was a lot of history. And I, what I did was I put together a book about the places and the faces of the gangsters who were involved. And we did maps and it was very, uh, you know, it was, it was a nice thing because I wanted to preserve the history of the mafia and organized crime in my own little way. Right. And you're right there on site in New York City in Manhattan. So. Yeah, it's right there. But I did it not just in Manhattan. I did it also in, um, you know, Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, a little bit of Staten Island. Uh, and it worked. It worked. You know, it's one of these boutique books. It's not a big seller, but it has people and it gets 
the highest ratings in terms of likes and uh, you know stars than any of the books really uh, because you know it's something that people like. In any case, I uh, then went to do uh, the big heist, which you talked about before about the Lufthansa heist, and that was off of another trial I covered. Uh, and after that, I went to do. Um, Frank Costello. Uh, and Frank Costello is an interesting character because he was the gentleman gangster. He was the, the sort of prime minister of the mob. He was a guy who really didn't like violence late in his life and uh, uh, became very influential politically in New York City. As you're talking the 30s and the 40s, uh, at least in, through the 40s. And then he got into trouble tax trouble, went to jail, and got into a dispute with my next subject, who was Vito Genovese, for control of the crime family. Now remember, the crime family that Costello and Genovese were part of was Lucky Luciano's old family. And Luciano, at this point in time, you're talking late 30s and into the 40s, of course, was in jail because of a prostitution conviction. And he, you know, but essentially Costello and Genovese were kind of running the affairs. And of course, as things happen in the world of the mafia, they didn't really like each other that much. And there was sort of all sorts of you know, scheming that was going on politically within the mob. And Costello wasn't really cut out for this kind of hardball mob stuff. And it was Genovese who went after him. And then ultimately engineered an assassination attempt, which was unsuccessful. And with that, Costello retired, and Genovese, the subject of the Deadly Dawn, went on to take control of the family. But it was a very ill-fated run that he had, and that's what the book is all about, how Genovese rose up and how he sort of screwed things up very late in life. Uh, and, and didn't yeah. really he was really yeah. one of the prime movers of the five families, what's known as the five families in... Uh, the mafia, and but he had that rise. He rose to the top. That still has his name today, right? Yeah, the Vito Genovese family, Genovese family, the Genovese crime family. Um, and he, Bonanno, Bonanno crime family and Binyamino. It's Genovese, still, still Genovese, still Vito's. And he goes all the way back to Italy. So he was kind of one of those types who, like Luciano, with ties to the old country. Can you kind of talk about his early life and how he got involved in the criminal underworld? Well, Vito emigrated, like many of them did, emigrated to the United States, you know, in his early teen years. Um, he got into, into New York City, he got into trouble. Uh, he uh, was, you know, carrying a gun. Uh, and he was almost had to go into the army because of that. The judge said, look, I can send you to jail. You can go into the army. This is about 1917, 1918. And Vito was going to go to the army. But by that time, the war was over. So Vito didn't have to go to the army. And instead, he sort of went back to his old ways on the street. He was loosely allied with, you know, Luciano and uh, that whole orbit of people. But you're talking 1920s here. We're now into prohibition. And Vito was a foot soldier. He was into prohibition. He was into bootlegging. 
and he, you know, uh, they think he killed a few people. He was also a target of assassination. And by 1934, he was pretty big in the family, Luciano's family. But Vito had the misfortune of getting involved in a homicide in Brooklyn. And they, he was getting pretty close to him. So he had to leave. He went back to Italy. Uh, he had to leave his wife and his kids, but he went back to Italy where he hooked up of all, with all people as Mussolini's family. Mussolini, as you may, may remember, you know, went after the mafia in, in Italy, in Sicily. But Vito Genovese, be he a mob character or not, had a very good relationship with Mussolini's family. And mainly because of money. Vito had a lot of money. And he was able to spread it around to the fascist party. And he became sort of like a, a, a favored American. And he was able to live in the Naples area, uh, run his uh, uh, black market rackets. Some say he was involved in narcotics at this stage. It's not entirely clear, but he may have been. And then he stayed in Italy through World War II, while his wife and everybody else in the family was back in, in the States. Now, Vito, uh, the interesting thing about Vito is he was a character who would switch sides politically when he had to. When Mussolini was in power, he aligned with Mussolini. When Mussolini was deposed. He allied himself uh, somewhat with the, the Nazis. When the Americans were coming up the spine of Italy in the invasion, he allied himself with the Americans and actually became a translator for the occupation forces. And, uh, you know, it, it, that was an interesting thing. But, but wasn't that, uh, sorry to interrupt, yeah, but ahead. wasn't that sense of his alignment something that kept him alive even through the mob? So you likened it to you use this metaphor from Catch-22, the book, the old man who- The like, old man, yeah. <laughs> you talk about that. I mean, he just had a real sense of survival. He did. I mean, the the the, the motif, I used, the old man in Catch-22, for those who hadn't seen the movie, was, or the, read the book, was a very old man who hung out in the brothels. And uh, he uh, would you know, mock the Amer young American soldier's idealism. And he- was criticized, oh, the soldiers would say, oh, you switch sides at a moment's notice, you have no principles. And he said, yes, but I'm 107 years old, and how old are you gonna be if you survive? Uh, which was interesting because it showed that he would switch sides when the fascists were in power, when the Nazis were in power, when the Americans were in power. It showed his ability to survive through making very opportune alignments, which is what Vito did throughout most of his criminal career. You know, he was uh, Luciano, very successful, left when he had to, Mussolini, the Nazis, of course, uh, and also the Americans at the end. Uh, so he, you know, he had a sense of doing the right thing for himself to survive politically, kind of cagey. Right, like he, I mean, he survived all the way through. Not all the mobsters did, right? No, no. Now, and, and, and the interesting thing about Vito is that he, the Americans did get wise to him in the war, and they didn't realize that he had an open homicide case in Brooklyn. And so 
although they arrested him for black market activities, they really deported him for all practical purposes from Italy back to Brooklyn to stand trial for the homicide. Uh, and there again, it becomes, it wasn't a political thing that saved Vito. It was really the intricacies and technicalities of New York law. Uh, the, the only, there was nobody, the, the only person who could testify about his involvement in the homicide was an accomplice. And there's a rule in New York that you can't be convicted solely upon the evidence of your accomplice. So there's no other evidence to connect Vito to the to the homicide. So he, he got off. The case was dismissed. Right, right. It's a specific rule, the witness the accomplice rule, right? Uh, yeah, the accomplice rule. It still exists. And so he, I mean, he had this, I mean, the funny guy who arrested him was, it was Orange Dickey. Like he had a funny American name. It's kind yeah. of a really curious character. So he gets back to the U.S. after the war. What happens next? Well, after the war, that case is, homicide case has gone away. In fact, it went away for all the other people who were involved because there was no other, no other evidence against them. And, um, he became more prominent in the crime family, which at this point was really under the caretaking uh, activity of Costello, uh, Frank Costello. But Vito had his power, and Vito was somebody, but uh, Costello was the man. He politically was very connected. Everybody who was everybody in New York politics, uh, you know, was. Uh, 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 familiar with Costello, and he was like a, a favored uh, uh, force. Of course, that worked against him in the end as well, because you know reformists didn't like that, and eventually, you know, they started gunning for him to right. sort of. They were, they were up against yeah. the Marty, yeah. Dewey, yes. these other characters. Can you talk? About yes. That? Yeah, Laguardia hated gangsters. You call them the bums or whatever. And he went after the gangsters, particularly Costello, because Costello had the slot machines in New York, a big slot machine operation. Uh, these were kind of, to get around the law, they would have the slot machines where you put tokens in, tokens in and you get back a, a, a mint or a, something else and you could exchange it for something at the, the candy store. But it was basically gambling still. And Costello went after them, uh, not Costello, uh, LaGuardia went after them and really successfully got the courts to squeeze Costello's slot machines. So what did Costello do? He decamped and went to Louisiana, where he had more, he did go to Alabama, Hot Springs, Georgia. And then, but he went to set up his slot machines in Louisiana with the help or the benign uh, uh, help of uh, Huey Long, uh, uh, who was a political power down there. And, uh, you know, he set up a fairly substantial operation. He also set up a, a nightclub operation, too. Uh, and that went on for a few years for Costello. So he was able to change himself. He was very astute and crafty as a businessman. And he had legitimate businesses. He was a gambler. He was able to gamble. And he didn't hide that. 
Uh, of course, he got into tax trouble. He beat one tax case, but later in life, uh, they, con they convicted him. And that was, uh, that, that essentially did in Costello and weakened him, uh, which gave an opening for Genovese. Right. And they, they did a huge meeting of all of the mob guys, or there were a couple, but there was one in Flor in Cuba in 46, right? Where they yeah. needed to talk about things. Can you talk yeah, about that? Yeah, there were, there were um, you know, talking right after World War II, there were a couple of big meetings of the mob. Um, one was in Cuba at a time when uh, Luciano had come back to Cuba. He was deported by that at that time, Luciano. It's just, history is also crazy. Luciano deported to Italy and came back to Cuba thinking maybe he could springboard to the United States. But in any case, before he could do that, they had a big meeting in, in uh, Cuba, in Havana. And Costello was there, Genovese was there, uh, the guys from Chicago were there, the Fischetti brothers, uh, Meyer Lansky, uh, some lawyers, and, uh, you know, it was a big contest. And Sinatra, too. I think you included Sinatra. Yeah, Sinatra, Sinatra was the entertainment. He denied that he really was tied into these guys, but that he'd been hired to do entertainment. Uh, but, you know, he was spotted. And uh, he had to explain that for the rest of his life, Frank. Frank Sinatra. And I and think then, you wrote that they had to settle the Las Vegas matters, right? Yeah, the, at part of the meeting dealt with narcotics. Luciano allegedly said that he didn't want to be involved. But if you guys are going to do it, you better be careful. And of course, Genovese uh, would later show up to be involved in that. But they also dealt with the Bugsy Siegel situation in Las Vegas. At this, by this time, Bugsy had spent a lot of money, a lot of mob money, building the Flamingo. Uh, the sort of forerunner of the hotel industry in uh, in Las Vegas. And he did it in very grand style, but it was using a lot of money, big cost overruns. And as you saw, I think you may have seen it in the movie, uh, uh, the first one of the Godfather movies, uh, also I think in this movie about Bugsy Siegel, that when they opened the Flamingo, it was in, during a... a the middle of a storm, a winter storm, and nobody could come. And it was really kind of a bust that opening night. Gradually, they recouped the money. But Bugsy was not doing himself any favors by wasting all that money, by spending it so grandly. And there was some suspicion that maybe he was skimming. So the meeting in Havana uh, dealt with his fate. And it was there that it was decided that Bugsy, you know, had to go. And that's he, what he, happened. He, 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 and that's what happened. Shot in Beverly Hills, yeah. Yeah, risk it Turns out he was right, too. He he just needed a little bit more time to uh, repeat yeah. the physical. Yeah, the, 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 the hotel did eventually catch on. And look what you have today, right? Uh, and uh, But uh, I don't know, Bugsy didn't do it right. He just didn't play ball the right way. Right, and Vito kind of had problems too, family problems that possibly could have sabotaged him, right? Vito had an interesting family life. He was married in the 1920s to a woman named Donata. Uh, Anna is part of the name, but it's really Donata. 
A young woman, very well liked in the Italian community in New York, did a lot of charitable work. Uh, but she got sick with a virulent form of TB. And Vito, um, she dies. And Vito, one of Vito's relatives, a woman named Anna uh, Patillo, uh, was part of his extended family. And he eventually took up with her. But she was married, Anna. She was married to a sort of ne'er-do-well sort of gangster in the, in the Prohibition era. And he was killed. Uh, Vernatico was his name. And uh, Gerard Vernatico. And he was killed very grisly fashion. And everybody thought, of course, that it was Vito who killed him or engineered the killing so that he could marry uh, Gerard's wife. Anna. And that's been the story that's, you know, kept on for years and years and years. I, I cast a little doubt on that because Anna and her husband, Gerard uh, Vernatico, were already divorced before he was murdered, like three or four months before he was murdered. So the, the incentive, I think, for Genovese to have to get him out of the way to marry Anna, I don't think was there. Uh, but, you know, you never know these things. Uh, uh, Vernatico was in, uh, in bootlegging like everybody else was at that time. And uh, he may have angered people, pissed them off, welched on money, uh, cut it, cut into rival territory. So he was in a situation where he was living a dangerous life anyway. But did Vito engineer the, the killing? The common Perception is that he did. I'm not so sure he did. So, Vito marries Anna, who is pregnant with uh, their, was eventually their son, Philip, at that point. And, and Philip, Vito's and kids are still alive today, too. These children are still around. Yeah, the, uh, his, his son through Anna is still alive. Uh, and he has a daughter, had a daughter, Nancy who, as far as I know, is still alive. They're well into their 90s, the late 80s. Uh, I asked, I tried to contact, I, contact, I tried, contacted them to, to do the book when I was doing the book. They didn't respond. You know. uh, I think that, you know, they just I'm so gun shy about publicity that they weren't going to respond. But I got a lot of Vito's talking about his family through court cases where, you know, he gave testimony, private testimony. So it was interesting. He said who was related to who, and he had a, Anna had a daughter, Rosemary, and everybody thought it was Vito's, but Vito said, no, it's not, and I adopted her, so. Right, but he was, I mean, also his character, Vito's was kind of like not, he was not uh, very showy. Like he was always trying to be a little profile, right? Vito more or less kept the low profile publicly. But at some point, uh, you know, it got out. He, he became uh, more prominent. And this was in the, in the, in the, in the, in the 50s, 50s and 60s, particularly when he engineered the assassination of Costello, and then went on to take over the family, and then had the second meeting, right? The, the other mob meeting, the infamous Appalachian meeting in upstate New York, that was Vito pushing that, because he wanted to be 
anointed as the boss, make her aware that everybody, that he's the boss. And of course, everybody said, no, we shouldn't have the meeting in upstate New York. Maybe let's have it in Chicago, where we control the elements there, the police more. But no, Vito had everybody come to New York. And you know what happened there it was a disaster. If the cops found out about it, and it created all sorts of legal problems. Genovese's name by that point is all over the place. Right, and so they had like Giancana was there and people from all over the country. And that's really kind of where it became the Kefauver hearing, right? Came out of that, is that right? Well, Kefauver actually uh, was prior to that. Uh, Kefauver was about 50, 51. Appalachia was uh, about 58 or 57. And, uh, but Vito, even in the Kefauver years was hardly an element. He was hardly noted. I mean, there may have been one or two mentions of him, but he wasn't called to testify. He didn't testify. Uh, Costello was the big testimony in the Kefauver hearings, uh, you know, where he uh, tried to justify his existence, but didn't do a very good job. He wasn't very credible. He came off as crooked uh, from what the public could see. And he was evasive and, you know, wouldn't answer things and combative. Vito wasn't mentioned at all in Kefauver. That was interesting. But later, in the 57, 58, he became more prominent, much to his detriment. Right. So he had a legal, he had constant problems. He had problems with his wife in court, but he also had problems whether he was a citizen or not, right? He was, yeah. Well, Anna and him had a, a divorce case that didn't go to divorce, but he had to, she was suing him for money and support. Uh, and that's when Anna said, you know, try to reveal that in court that Vita was into all these mob elements, all these controlling, all these rackets and stuff like that. And uh, that didn't work well. Uh, but nothing happened to Vito because of that. There was no prosecution from that. Uh, and they didn't get a divorce. Vito wound up paying her some sort of support. It wasn't very much, I might add. And then Vito had problems with immigration, like you just said. They wanted to expel him. This was a tactic of the government at that point. They were going to expel all these Italian mobsters because they lied somehow in their immigration applications. In Costello's case, he lied about his bootlegging activity. In Vito's case, he lied about his um, uh, criminal record. And they sort of had him dead to rights on that too. But um, they never really got to deport him, even though they stripped him of his, uh, of his uh, citizenship. And I mean, so it just was his problems with the law were uh, all the time. And there were earlier times when he was younger where the cases were dropped, right? Yeah, Vito, I mean, up until the 50s, Vito was living a charmed life. He had these petty gun cases, homicide cases. They were all dropped, whether non prost or whatever, no evidence. Um, the murder case in Brooklyn, 1945, dismissal. That was a big dismissal. But as you get into the 50s, um, um, you know, you had the immigration issue for Vito. And then you had the bullseye on his back, the narcotics case. And that was the thing that really did him in. 
he, he, he actually was trying to not get involved in that case at all, right? So he was kind of a secondary player. Yeah, interesting. You know, people do say, and Vito, of course, to the day he died, denied any activity that he was framed. And there are people who think that, yeah, he was framed. The reason why is because that the only witness against him was a guy uh, by the name of uh, Cantaloupes was his last name. I forget the first name. Uh, and he was the only witness who was part of this little, this drug cabal. He was a worker, basically, who claimed to have heard Vito say something that vouched for him. And nearby were a couple of DEA agents. Then it wasn't DEA at that point. It was uh, Bureau of Al uh, Bureau of Narcotics, and they overheard the conversation, and that was the thing that sort of tied Vito into the conspiracy. And then Cantaloupe testified that he actually, and this is where it gets a little incredulous because the big boss is going to be dealing with you, the little worker, uh, but he, he traveled with Vito to a meeting in the Bronx where they were going to divvy up the narcotics trade for the Hispanic community. And that was where, you know, they, they started putting the case together. They didn't have much on Vito, apart from what Cantaloupes gave them. Neither they believed Cantaloupes, the jury, or they wouldn't. And in Vito's case, they did. And I got to tell you, there were a lot of mafia characters involved in that case, a lot of them. The old myth is that the mob wasn't involved in narcotics, but they were involved. Put Vito aside for a moment. There were so many mobsters in New York, so many mafiosi doing narcotics involved in conspiracies. John Armento, Indimo Papadillo, uh, Carmine Galante. Um, you know, you could go down a list of people and they were all involved. They all got tied up and jammed up on cases. So, you know, the old myth about the mob not being involved in narcotics is just that. It's a myth. Right. And there's a lot of events in this book where you can see that the fictional writers are drawing from the true crime mob events, people getting shot at the barber shop and uh, some of these oh, other yeah. events. Clearly yeah. Albert Anastasia, of course, right? Permeated the culture, yeah, the American culture. Um, we're at about 40 minutes here, Tony. Is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, this book is excellent. It really gave me, it's a historical book too. It's It's about this really fascinating character, but also the context of turn of the century, New York City, uh, so many different elements to it. What's the, uh, do you have anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before? Well, yeah, I mean, when I'm doing these books, I come to appreciate, this. it's almost like a tapestry when you write about the mob this way. It's like, it's almost never ending. You know, there's always scenes that, and characters that sort of dance across uh, the screen and they're interconnected. One leads to the other, one story leads to the next, and just keeps going and going. Um, so that's the that's been the fun part of doing this. And also, it's been a learning experience for me. Because when we started doing mob reporting as cub reporters, we didn't go back that far. You know, we were sort of like here and now. But going back and you see the history, you realize how um, how the mob grew, how it matured. And how, of course, it went into decline and why. Uh, and yeah, also, since 
that the mob is really now part of uh, American folklore. Uh, it's really kind of like, uh, I think the late Peter Moss said, uh, these characters are like out of the Wild West in certain ways, the stories. Um, you know, there's very star good and bad. Uh, they're powerful figures, they're malicious figures, this thievery, this intrigue, this treachery. And it, 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 I think the, the, the mafia story is now part of our you know, folklore, which is why it's attracted so much attention. It really is. It's a really fascinating book. And again, there's an audio book too, so people can listen to that. And you also have a website. It's your full name, TonyDeStefano.com. But right. you also operate a Facebook page too, titled yeah. King of the Godfather, right? Uh, no, the, well, my Facebook page is um, uh, it's uh, Anthony DeStefano or Tony DeStefano on Facebook. On Facebook, okay, so and you know that's where I am. Um, uh, if anybody wants to email me, they can email me at uh, 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 on AOL or through or through Facebook. Uh, and I'll get back to you. You can message me through Facebook, and I'll get back to you. And gotcha. uh, you know. Uh, I can put your email in here too. I mean, let's see. Your email is, I've got it. It's destef541 at aol.com, right? That's correct. That's it. So we can put that in there. And really, AOL will work too. Okay, cool. And a really interesting, uh, great book and great conversation. Thanks so much again. The title of the book is The Deadly Dawn Vito Genovese. Mafia Boss, published May 25th, 2021. There is an audio book, and again, 93 five-star reviews, so check it out. Thanks so much for your time, Tony. Well, thank you, William. It was All a right. pleasure to be on. Likewise. Stay there. Stay there.